Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you Imagine uh, for today. Imagine you stand. Uh, we thank you for your word as we uh, continue on in this uh, series on the book of Romans. Uh, I just pray that you would be with us and uh, that everything uh, I say and do would, would be for your glory. Uh, we thank you again for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let me uh, start out our discussion uh, this morning by asking the question, how are mistakes made right? How are mistakes made right? How is sin made right in, in your home? Maybe in your home, apologies are made or an act of service is done or a gift is purchased in order to make a mistake right. What about in your work environment? Maybe in your work environment, a mistake is made by, right by you're just X'd out of decision making for a while. It's like, all right, you're on the sideline now. Uh, you're, you're put on the sideline for that project. Uh, you, you made a mistake. What, what about in your extended family? Maybe in your extended family, a mistake is met with the silent treatment or you just stop communicating. What about in our culture? How is a mistake made right in, in our culture? And to be honest with you, our culture, it, we're kind of all over the map on this. Uh, there are behaviors that I think are a sin that are celebrated, and there are other behaviors that, by the way, I also think are a sin uh, that are canceled. And it's really a sign and a symptom that we really don't know what to do with sin in our culture. We, we just don't. I, I think that this gospel category that this series is kind of about, the, the gospel, this gospel category of that is a sin, and guess what? I love you. The, this category is disappearing at a rapid rate. It's either celebrated or canceled. And it's one of the things that we'll see in the book of Romans is how God deals with sin in his home. How God deals with sin on, on the earth. How things can be made right, in particular with God. And this is what Romans 3 is about, verse 21. He says, starts out, but now apart from the law, the righteousness, the rightness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. That the righteousness that was given before Jesus, the righteousness that was given before was through the law system. And when we think about the law system, we have a tendency to think about, I think all of us do, the Ten Commandments. And that's good because that was kind of God's original law. And what those Ten Commandments became were almost like chapter headings. As you read your Old Testament, they're almost like chapter headings of a whole bunch of other laws that fit under those categories. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. Each command fits under one of the headings of the Old Testament. So here's my point. There's a lot of commandments, right? If your rightness is going to be made by the law, there are a lot of commandments to uphold, and the law became the vehicle through which righteousness was determined. Not lying, worshiping one true God, uh, not bowing to an idol, following the Sabbath. This became the way in which your rightness, before God in particular, was determined. And here's the thing. I think we kind of like that as Americans, right? In the American church that we like this, that I am made righteous by what I do. There is a part of us that like this. So I try to be a good person. I try to love my neighbor. I try to do what is right. I try to be at a minimum better than the knucklehead living next to me, right? And that becomes my standard of righteousness. And here's the thing, if you believe in God, then you believe that God's law is the standard for what it means to be righteous. 
There, there's one kind of tiny problem that comes from that belief system, and it's kind of a big deal, but then we need to know exactly what God's law says, right? That if we're going to say, man, I am made righteous by what I do, I'm made righteous by the law, then certainly you could make an argument that we would need to know what the law says. And according to a survey by Kelton Research, it found that more people in America can name the ingredients of the Big Mac sandwich than name the Ten Commandments. 80% of 1,000 respondents, or 1,000 people responded, 80% could name the Big Mac's primary ingredient two all-beef patties. Less than 6 in 10, all right? Less than 6 in 10 knew that one of the commandments was you shall not kill. Now, if you're driving around today and you get involved in a road rage, road rage incident, that should disturb you. Almost half the people in the U.S. don't know that killing's against God's law. Less than half the respondents, 45%, could recall the commandment, honor your father and mother. Not sure any of us are shocked by that, but it is a command. And 62% knew that the Big Mac had a pickle. All right. So what happens when you have a people who want to prove themselves righteous through obedience to the law, through their behavior, and they don't actually know what the law says. What happens? What happens is that God's law gets thrown out as the standard, and my law takes its place. And if you want to know what is happening in our current culture, I just gave it to you. God's law is dismissed, and my law takes its place. It's a pretty good description of what's happening. We are all operating out of our own sense of what is right, what is righteous, and what is good. But if we're honest, we know that there's a God and he has a standard of righteousness. If we're being really, really honest this morning, it's church, so I hope we are. We also know that we fall short of it. And God knew that. God knew we were going to fall short of it. So he, in the law system, he developed this kind of sacrificial system to make sins right. That our righteousness is determined by the law, and when I fall short of it, there is a sacrifice that I can make to make things right. This was a grace, but at the end of the day, the sacrifice was still kind of on me. The altar of personal sacrifice required that I make the sacrifice for my sin, or the priest make the sacrifice for my, for, for my sin. And most often, I would sacrifice a lamb from my flock. It was supposed to be the best one, not the one, you know, in the corner about to die, right? That's not the one you gave God. You gave him the best, the unblemished one, the perfect one. So the sacrifice was costly to me. It was costly to my family. And it was required by God as a substitute for my sin. You say, well, this is kind of weird. And I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, have your own universe and you do it your own way, right? This is just how God did it, right? It was required by God to cover our sin. And I think <clears throat> there is a part of Americans that love this as well. That we have this saying in this country, I did the crime, so I'll do the... Yeah, I did the crime, so I'll do the time. And I think that this mentality leads us to three places. One, I justify myself. I inflate my own sense of righteousness. And I undervalue God's sense of righteousness. 
at, at, at the same time. So I justify myself and I devalue the righteousness of God. Here's how Francis, Stan, uh, Francis Chan said it. He said, I believe the two scariest lies on earth right now are, uh, that are so prevalent are one, you are a good person. <clears throat> Welcome to Northwest, all right? But it, it, it's a lie that our culture believes and that because God is loving, he will not punish sin. So those are the two biggest lies our culture believe. But there's a third thing that trying to find our righteousness from the law does is it causes us to manipulate the law. We are so good at this. All right, imagine for a minute that you spent the afternoon baking cookies. Not that this has ever happened in our house, but you walk in and one of your children has chocolate all over their face. And there's a cookie that is gone. And you say to that child, hey, did you eat my cookies? And they say, no, I didn't eat my cookies, all the while having chocolate on your face. And you say, well, I'm going to have to punish you for lying to me. And they say, I didn't lie. You said, did you eat my cookies? And I ate one cookie. (laughs) So I didn't lie. This is what we do. We have a tendency to manipulate the law in our favor. And it keeps us from seeing our sin. It keeps us from seeing our need for a savior. And I think because we fall short, I think that because we have that tendency, God knew that we needed a righteousness, an ability to be made right. Here's how the text says it, apart from the law. Wasn't the law's problem, it was was what we do with the law. He said they need a righteousness apart from the law. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do, verse 21. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to who? All who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul makes a couple of statements to get us all on the same page. He said, first of all, all have sinned. All have fallen short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And one of the things that our culture is doing with our kind of desire to be made righteous by the law, one of the things that we're doing is trying to prove ourselves as righteous. And I'll tell you, when you study the the writings of Paul who wrote Romans, when you study his writings, Paul actually seems to become increasingly aware as he got older of his sin. All right, so, so here's 1 Corinthians 15, 9. This was written in 56 A.D. Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Least of the apostles. This is Ephesians 3, 8, written some five years later. The grace, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. So he goes from the least of the apostles to the least of all the saints, And then this is written a couple years later. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. So Paul, as he's aging, as he's growing in Christ, Paul is becoming not increasingly aware of his own righteousness. Paul is becoming increasingly aware of his need for a Savior, of his sinfulness. And I think it's important for us to cover this, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you don't believe that about yourself, you're deceiving yourself. I have, you have, we all have. There's absolutely no reason at all for Christians 
to act like they're better than anybody else. There's absolutely no reason for Christians to engage in over-the-top judgment of others. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. And I think that too can go off the rails a little bit. It can become, uh, if we're not careful, this can become celebratory. I've seen some preachers and speakers almost kind of walk this line of kind of almost bragging about some of their sin. But it can also become denigration and identification, an attack on self-esteem, that I am no good, I'm unlovable, and I'm garbage. And the gospel helps us avoid both those things. The gospel helps us, Jesus helps us to see our sin and identify our sin, but not celebrate it. Why would we celebrate? We're going to celebrate his grace. And the gospel helps us to identify our sin, but not be identified by it. The gospel helps us to see. Jesus helps us to see. We are not garbage. On the contrary, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So all have sinned. And then he goes on to say this in verse 24. And all are justified freely. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. How great is our God, amen? All have sinned. Every single person has sinned. But all, he gives us the opportunity, all are justified freely, forgiven freely. And I love the language of this text. We are justified by his grace. In other words, it didn't cost us anything. It came through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Here's what that means. It costs us nothing. It costs him everything. I was driving around with Lila the other day, uh, and we were just kind of chatting, as you do with four-year-olds. And we were talking about what a kind of magical time of year is coming up. You know, we got Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas And then her birthday is a couple days after Thanksgiving, so she kind of lumps that in there too, right? It's just a time of celebration. And she said, Daddy, what would you say is your favorite holiday? And I said, well, I would have to say my favorite holiday. She said, my favorite holiday is Christmas. Oh, I'm not talking right now. I'm sorry. That was a question you wanted to answer, right? My favorite holiday is Christmas And I like birthdays, Christmas and birthdays. And I said, what do you like about those? And she just was very honest. I like getting presents. I mean, you don't have something and then you have it. It's cool. I was like, you're you're right, baby girl. It, it, It is cool. And there's something really beautiful about gift giving. Most of the time, it's like, man, I'm doing this because I love you. You didn't earn it. It's, it's, it's Christmas. Here's the gift. It costs you nothing. It cost me 1995. It costs you nothing. <laughs> I like to spoil my kids. 1995's the my bench. All right, so I want you to notice where the redemption and the payment came from. The ability to have sin paid for. It wasn't paid by us. It was a gift to us. The redemption, the payment came from Jesus. Look at it. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 
Christ became our sacrifice of atonement. Depending what translation of the Bible that you read, this can be translated as Christ became our propitiation. Right? Big theological word. If you want to impress people at work tomorrow, probably not actually that impressive. But hey, what did you guys do at church yesterday? We studied propitiation. I've been meaning to talk to you about your hair loss, right? That sort of thing. But um, now that's propitiation, right? So, um, so it can be translated as propitiation, but a lot of times it's also translated as the mercy seat. So let me build this up for you a little bit. So in the Old Testament, when the tabernacle was being built and later the temple, God gave very specific instructions on how forgiveness of sins would come to the nation of Israel. And so he gave very specific instructions on how forgiveness of sins would come. And it involved the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments kind of were stored and where they traveled with Israel through the desert. And eventually they were, that tabernacle with the Ten Commandments in them was placed in the tabernacle and later the temple. And the tabernacle became known by, to Israel as, man, that's the house of the Lord. That's where the tabernacle is. That's where the commandments are. That's where God's presence is. That is the house of the Lord. And in this tabernacle, they put the Ark of the Covenant, and they placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant an ornate, beautiful lid. You can Google this and kind of see a a, a picture that, that people think that it might have looked like. An ornate lid. And this lid on that uh, Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. All right, That's what that lid was called. And it was all placed behind the curtain of the tabernacle in what was called the most holy place. So you got the tabernacle built, you got a curtain up, the, te- the, the uh, most holy place was behind that curtain, the tabernacle with the Ten Commandments and the ornate lid was placed inside of there. So there's this passage in Leviticus I want to show you. And in it, God gives instructions to Aaron, the the high priest at the time, about the day of atonement, how forgiveness of sins would come. First to Aaron, who was seeking forgiveness for the people, but eventually, as you read through the entire chapter, the the entire nation of Israel would receive forgiveness of sins. These were instructions about how sin would be made right. And here's, I want to kind of paint this image for you, because it started with some coals, And those coals would create smoke in the most holy place. And this is significant because when you entered into that most holy place, um, they wanted that smoke to protect you from seeing the honor and the glory and the presence of God. Because if you saw it without your sins being taken care of, you would die. As a matter of fact, later in the high priest system, they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle. And if he went in there and accidentally saw the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God without his sins being atoned for, he would die and they'd just drag him out and kind of take care of it, right? And so this was a really, really big deal. So they said, we're going to create all this smoke in this room to protect you from seeing the glory and the majesty and the greatness of God. And I think sometimes we forget about God's holiness, and his majesty, and his glory, and his righteousness. The gospel of the New Testament is meant to give you grace and forgiveness. The gospel was not intended to diminish God's holiness in your mind. It's meant to demonstrate it. So listen, God is just as holy in Romans as he is in Leviticus. He is just as big in the life of Jesus as he was in Genesis, creating the sun and the moon and the stars. He's just as righteous in the early church as he is in the book of Exodus. He's just as big today as he was then. 
So you remember, as we gather together as a church family, we are here to honor and give glory and praise to God who is holy and righteous and deserving of it. So when we all gather together, it's not that this is a special room. It's not a special room per se. God resides in the hearts of his people. But we do want to remember his glory. We want to remember his majesty. We want to remember his righteousness. And we want to give him the praise he is due. We don't want to withhold our praise. right? We don't want to hold back our praise. I think when we do that, it is a failure to remember how holy and righteous and good God is. So let me show you this passage in Leviticus. Talking about Aaron. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. So you're going behind the curtain and do with it as he did the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites. And underline this if you've got your Bible. Whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same in the tent of meeting, which is among them and in the midst of the uncleanliness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out. Have you made atonement for himself? his household, and the whole community of Israel. So I want you to see this. I want you to envision this. Aaron goes behind the curtain. It's smoke. There's a lot of smoke in the room from the coals. He's already slaughtered the goat, the lamb without blemish. He goes behind the curtain, and he can't see. So he's feeling around. He's maybe on his hands and knees trying to get below the smoke. He he doesn't know exactly where he's going. And all of a sudden, he feels the ark. In that smoky room. He feels the ark. And then he feels the mercy seat on top of the ark. And I love the text. He will make atonement for Israel. By putting that blood from that perfect lamb. Putting that blood on top of the the ark of the covenant. The mercy seat. And it says he will make atonement for Israel. And I love this phrase. Never forget this phrase. Whatever their sins have been. Because of this ritual. He will make atonement for them. Whatever their sins have been, mercy and grace will come to Israel. Here's verse 25 of Romans. And God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Spiritually, this is what is happening in the gospel. Our high priest, our Aaron, our new and better Aaron Jesus is taking his own blood and he's sprinkling it on the mercy seat to make atonement for you and for me. Whatever our sins have been. Some of you are here today and you would say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins I've committed. You don't know the shame that I, would, I feel. And I would say, no, no, no. You don't know what's been done for you. He has brought you atonement. He has brought you mercy. He has brought you grace for whatever sins you have committed. For whatever sins you have committed. There's a story I love about Jesus' cousin John. And he was the forerunner to Jesus. And he was meant to prepare the way for Jesus, John the Baptist. 
And one day, John's out kind of doing his thing, and Jesus is walking toward him, and John stops what he's doing. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. He stops what he's doing, and he points across that pasture, and he says, look, and he points to Jesus, and he says, there's the Lamb of God. There he is. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb that lived the perfect life. The Lamb that shed his own blood. The lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat so you and I could know God. We could worship God. We could follow God. We could call him our king. This grace, this righteousness, this mercy, it's already been done. It's not what you need to do. It's already been done. It is received by you and by me through faith. So let's say I win the lottery, all right? We'll just, you got to, play to win, which is my problem. But all right, all right, I win the lottery. And I decide with my lottery winnings, I am going to build my dream house on Lake Decatur. Right? And I do exactly that. I spare no expense. Absolutely beautiful. And after about a week of living in this house, I said, you know what? What was I thinking? I should have built my dream house on the ocean. I've got the money to do that. The o- no, I mean, no offense, right? The ocean's better than Lake Decatur, right? So what was I doing? So I I need to do something here. And so I decide I'm going to give that house to you. You've always been my favorite. So I'm going to give it to you. And I give that house to you. Let me ask you. It's a beautiful and incredible thing that's already been done. What is required of you in that moment? Is it to build the house? No, I, I built the house. Is it to pay for the house? No, the house has been paid for. Is it to line up and research the right contractors? No, I took care of that. The only thing required of you is to reach out your hand and take the keys to the house when I hand them to you. That's what's required of you. Now, is your life going to change because you moved into that house? Yeah, maybe you'll have more space now. Maybe you'll buy a boat. Who knows? Maybe you'll buy a boat. Maybe in general you'll feel more stable and happy having this big, beautiful home. Are some things going to be required of you because you moved in? Sure. You've got a house to clean and maintain. It's not going to clean itself. You bring your kids over and make them do it, whatever. But yeah, some stuff's going to have to be done. So Some things are going to require effort. This is the gospel, guys. It is an imperfect illustration, but this is the gospel. God has built through the gospel this beautiful house for you where you can live with him and know him and worship him and his blood with the mercy seat, his propitiation, that the work has been done. You have to say yes to him through faith. I want to live with you through faith. That's faith. But faith also says now that I've already said yes, some things are required. Some things are expected. Everything has changed, and that's good too, because he is a good God leading us to a good home and a good place. So yeah, there's some expectations now. There's some things we need to do, but that's not to take possession of the house. That's because you already live in the house. To take possession, you just have to reach out. You have to say, yes. I want to live there. I want to live with you. You have to say yes to him, because this propitiation This mercy seat, this grace makes it all possible. Grace and works are often seen as enemies. They're not enemies. They're best friends, actually. 
because of grace. I respond with works. I don't respond with works so I'll receive grace. I respond with works because I already have. And so we never want to lose our awe and celebration and focus of, of grace of what happened behind the curtain. You guys, what happened behind that curtain? That Jesus went behind that curtain in a smoky room and shed his own blood and put it on the mercy seat so that you and I could know, honor, worship, and call him king. It's grace received through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And right now, I just want to pray uh, for us as we get ready to receive communion that we would just be in awe of your grace and your mercy, this propitiation that you achieved through the cross, the altar of sacrifice. We are so grateful for your mercy. We're so grateful for your grace, and we just want to celebrate it right now. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let me put together the whole passage for us. Here's Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Oh, no, we've all sinned. But look at the next verse. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation on the mercy seat through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We are going to remember his grace right now as we receive communion. As the servers pass it out, you'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood. And this, guys, this is what happened behind that curtain. What we're remembering right now is what happened behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. It's how our sins were made right. How we received grace and mercy and forgiveness. He went behind that curtain so we didn't have to. So we're going to celebrate it and remember it. And then uh, you just focus on Christ and thank him for what he's done. And I'll come back up in a few minutes and we'll receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we are grateful for your grace. May we be in awe of it and celebrate it and walk in it as we leave this room. When we interact with servers at restaurants that we're at. As we interact with coworkers and family members as we walk through just our life this week, may we be filled with and remember your grace that you went behind that curtain and paid for our sins. And we're grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's go ahead and stand up and uh, close with one last song. Oh, Christ.